Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Gaza has often been described as an open-air prison, but this term is not strong enough to describe the more than 2 million Palestinians living there, caged and carpet-bombed with nowhere to flee. Gaza is a concentration camp, some even argue a death camp, where thousands have been killed. I hesitate to state the exact death toll because by the time this is posted, it will be outdated. What we do know is Israel has murdered a child in Gaza every 10 minutes since October 7th, and Western leaders continue to applaud it, while politely asking Israel to respect humanitarian law, as if we're stupid enough to believe that means anything when Israel blows up hospitals, schools, churches, and mosques without consequence. Our leaders in the so-called democratic West are accomplices to this genocide, which is why they try to distract from it by arrogantly demanding we condemn Hamas before uttering a word about the carnage in Gaza. Israel's genocide in Gaza has shocked the conscience of the world. This moment in history will be forever defined by it. To discuss the implications of Israel's onslaught on global politics in an increasingly multipolar world, how the rift between the imperialist countries and the rest of the world has never been more stark, and the frightening reaction to the decline of American hegemony and what it means for Gaza and the rest of us, I'm joined by Tariq Cyril Amar, a historian from Germany, who's currently Associate Professor of History at Koch University. But before we jump into it, this is just the first half of this episode. The second half is available for Breakthrough News members only. You can become a member at patreon.com slash Breakthrough News. Tariq, welcome back to the show. Hi, Rania. Thanks for having me. Well, there's so much to discuss given the horrific nightmare that we're witnessing take place in Gaza. And I just wanted to start off by asking if you condemn Hamas. No, um, I actually, I do want to start off in the sense with that question, because mm-hmm. um, you've written a few pieces on this genocide that we're witnessing in Gaza, and you have a passage in one of them talking about this sort of like ritual of mm-hmm. demanding that people who are defending Palestinians in any way whatsoever, even defending their right to like live just the most basic things um, are, you know, it's insisted upon them that they, before they say anything else, condemn Hamas. So can you explain from your perspective why this ritual is so problematic and actually is meant to undermine uh, or undermine uh Palestinian freedom and reinforce um, Israel's right to massacre Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think it's a ritual. Um, I think it's uh, a ritual of submission, a sort of loyalty oath that you are supposed to take. And there are several reasons why I think it's a very unhealthy practice. Um, let me say one thing right in advance. One reason is that I don't believe in is that there's nothing that Hamas ever does that could be or can be or should be condemned. Of course, there will be such things. There have been such things, right? But here's the problem. When we are asked to condemn Hamas, while we actually discuss the current situation, the current genocide being carried out by Israel, first of all, it's a massive destruction, right? The first thing we're asked to do is not focus on the genocide, focus on Hamas, right? So, get like time and attention away from what is an immense crime, 
right? Genocide is the crime of crimes. And it is utterly perverse to start every discussion uh, with a distraction. The other thing is, of course, second reason, that when you would have to discuss a genocide carried out by Israel against the Palestinians, and instead you are asked to discuss Hamas and to condemn Hamas, there is a very specific implication here. And the implication, the implied and very perverse message is somehow what Hamas has done justifies the genocide. That is the implication here, right? But we know, we know ethically, we know legally, we know morally, that a genocide is never justified. It's a completely unjustifiable act by anything, right? Mm -hmm. So that is reason number two, why this is a very false, um, why this is a very false demand, right? It's not about what it claims to be about. It is about providing coverage for the crimes of Israel, right? That's reason number two. Reason number three is that, look, uh, if you look at what Hamas did, for instance, to be concrete, on the 7th of October, right, we don't have a very clear picture, and it's interesting how unclear it has remained. It's almost like Israel can always only give us a very wishy-washy picture. They can't ever give us enough details to fully understand what happened there. But we know enough to understand that Hamas certainly attacked military targets, right? And I'm not saying that it's great that people die in war, quite the opposite. <laughs> but, mm. but the attack on military targets cannot be condemned because it's legitimate. Palestinians have a right to resist occupation, oppression, annexation. This right derives directly from the from the recognized right that they have of self-determination. There's no two ways about this in international law. This is a very clear situation. When you are in the situation that the Palestinians are in, you have a right to fight, right? Nobody can come to you and say, you must be Gandhi. You cannot reach for a weapon. You can. You are allowed to reach for a weapon. That is the international law situation. So in so far as Hamas has attacked military targets, they have a right to do this because they are de facto acting for the Palestinians and as Palestinians in this resistance struggle. This is a very clear situation. Now, secondly, if Hamas fighters or maybe others during this attack deliberately killed civilians, that would be a war crime, right? As in other armies. A war crime you can condemn. You can also prosecute it if, you know, you have the opportunity, which is often not the case. However, and this is what a lot of people don't understand or don't want to understand, and I think what Israeli propaganda and Western propaganda constantly obfuscates, the fact that a military force has committed war crimes does not mean that that military force somehow loses its right to legitimate violence. Now, I don't know why this is so hard to understand. This planet is full of armies that have very rich histories of war crimes. The Germans, the Russians, ongoing the Americans and the Israelis, right? So if the fact that your army also commits crimes meant that you lose your right to fight in general, then all of these states would have to literally dissolve their armies, 
that's <laughs> not the case, right? So it's, it's actually entirely possible for an armed force to do both, to fight in a legitimate way that is recognized by international law and also to commit crimes. That doesn't mean the crimes are no crimes, but still it means that this force retains the right to fight back, right? So therefore, that's number three, a blanket condemnation of Hamas is strictly absurd. The very least you have to do as an honest observer is you have to distinguish between acts that Hamas commits that are actually legitimate and legal and acts that it commits that are not legal. Those latter and only those you could condemn. And it gets even more complicated. Not even that complicated, but it gets more sort of intricate and people, again, don't seem to realize this. We recognize in international law, and for instance, the Americans do it all the time, the Israelis do it in excess, beyond all imagination, the Russians do it, although actually not that much right now. We recognize in international law that military forces can, under certain circumstances, kill civilians and not commit a crime. And these circumstances are that either they do so truly accidentally, right, they don't do it deliberately, or they accept the fact that civilians will be killed, but this killing is proportionate to the military objectives they are legitimately pursuing. That is the real situation in international law. You see this all the time with the United States. It kills mm -hmm. civilians in all its wars. And most of the time, not in every case, but most of the time, we never hear about it because these civilians are classed, categorized as collateral damage under this principle. So Hamas falls under the same rules. I know that Israeli <laughs> apologists don't like to accept this, but it's a fact. Hamas falls under these rules as well. And therefore, not even as tragic as it is, as tragic as it is, but not even every civilian killed is automatically a crime. A crime emerges then, when you kill a civilian deliberately or out of proportion to the military objective pursuit, right? When you put all of this together, then A, a blanket condemnation of Hamas makes no sense at all. It makes no intellectual and legal sense. It's absurd. It's Orwellian. And secondly, even a condemnation of all Hamas violence does not actually work and does not make sense because you can show that there is legitimate violence in part of what Hamas is doing. And legitimate violence is not to be condemned legally. Or if people want to condemn that, then they will have to condemn all armies all the time, which most people don't do because that is actually radical pacifism. Right. But that's yeah. not what they want to do. They want to say, oh, yes, the American army can go and kill a enemy soldiers and be also some civilians. If the generals then tell us, well, that was necessary somehow or an accident. But Hamas can't do that. There's no reason at all why we should think that way. It's, it's a complete double standard and it needs to be rejected. Now, you take that together with the point I mentioned first, that the whole thing is a distraction anyhow to get you off thinking about the genocide, the ethnic cleansing committed by Israel, and not for the first time. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, right? You, you, one can't go along with this any longer. No, it's completely, completely absurd. And it just shows also the double standards of all of this 
humanitarian law that's been formulated over the last however many years since World War II, where all of these laws apply only when the U.S. Uh, kills civilians as collateral damage, if you will. But then if it's the you know, adversary doing it, then you know that's a war crime. Um, and there's all these gray areas so that it can just be like tweaked how you want. But it's just in this case, it's so absurd because Israeli officials are going on television and repeatedly mm. telling us they are actively exactly. bombing civilians on yes. purpose. Yes. It's intentional. They're saying we want to exterminate Gaza. Like these that, are, this is the language they're using. That is the one point I missed and I forgot I wanted to mention it, but I talked too long. So you're absolutely right. All of this condemn Hamas, condemn Hamas obsession is happening against the background of Israel actually committing these very war crimes massively. You want to see disproportionality at work. You want to see a military force that does not obey proportionality that says, oh, yes, we are pursuing their mass fighters, but in the process we kill only civilians right now. And basically, indiscriminately, they've said it. They've said themselves, we are no longer looking for precision. We're looking at that damage or impact. They made it explicit. That announcement itself is a war crime or is the announcement of a war criminal strategy. And the West overlooks all of this and, con and asks us to condemn Hamas. The, again, the, this demand to condemn Hamas is first of all, intellectually, mostly absurd, right? There is a part where you can still follow, but the, most of it is absurd. And the way it's used, the way it's obviously instrumentalized is morally decrepit because it occurs in a context where we are not supposed to see that. You want to know about human shields? The evidence is that in prior operations inside Gaza, it was actually the Israeli army that has used human shields extensively. Norman Finkelstein has worked on this and has shown it, not the Palestinians. Human shields don't mean what a lot of people think, namely that as a military force, you are in a densely settled area. You have no other area, right? Gaza is that way. And therefore, everybody, every civilian around you is automatically shield to you. That's not true. That isn't true. Human shields exist in international law and humanitarian law, but it's very specific things. It means like you literally grab a civilian and you drive him in front of you. The Germans mm -hmm. did that in the war against the Soviet Union. The Israelis have done exactly that in Gaza. You set up a sniper position and you put civilians in with you in the same room and you make it clear to the enemy they are there. Because that means that the enemy can already no longer attack you, for instance, with artillery without killing their own civilians. That's human shielding. Those are examples of real human shielding. The fact that there are a lot of civilians in Gaza and there is Hamas does not constitute human shielding. That's an idiotic talking point. Yeah. The people who really use human shielding very habitually are the Israeli forces. Disproportionality, human shielding, massive attacks on civilians all the time, attacks on hospitals, churches, shelters, so-called safe zones. I mean, it's a textbook of war criminality and it's an open textbook. We can all see it. I mean, it's just, it is really just stunning how these lies are continued to be to be perpetrated over and over in the Western media. I wanted to ask you to respond to another aspect of this. There's, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but 
This in particular, I think you're uh, sort of well-situated to respond to because you've done quite a bit of work on the kind of like abuse of history uh, when it comes to, for example, the war in Ukraine. Um, and I see an abuse of history taking place here. And we've seen this throughout the entire you know, Israeli conquering of Palestine for the past 75 years. And that is the weaponization of the Holocaust to somehow justify the treatment of Palestinians. And I know in a bit we are going to get to something else you've written on, which is the German attitude towards this. But I'm curious if you could just speak to maybe just your thoughts on the fact that we continue to hear Israeli officials. I think there was even the the Israeli ambassador to the UN put like Mm -hmm. a yellow star on and said, I'm going to wear this yellow star until everyone here condemns what Hamas has done. You know, obviously trying to talk about, like, to use imagery from what Nazis did to Jews during the Holocaust, or before the Holocaust, actually. Um, and just, you know, the repeated, you know, like, the, the the way that they repeatedly say, oh, this is like, an, this is the worst attack. October was the 7th was the, the biggest attack on Jews since the Holocaust. Like, this is repeatedly weaponized to justify genocide against Palestinians. Just your thoughts on that. My first thought is that that's true. The Holocaust, as terrible as that is, I wish it was different, but the Holocaust is being weaponized. Or, to be very precise, the memory or the reshaped or the public memory of the Holocaust is being weaponized, among other things, to shield genocide, ethnic cleansing of another group of victims, this type time by Israeli perpetrators and the victims being, of course, the Palestinians. This is a situation that is so distressing, I think, to look at, that is so morally perverse that a lot of people shy away from it. And they have a tendency to shoot the messenger, right? You say that and you get marginalized. So let me, let me be very, very clear about one thing so that nobody gets this wrong watching this later. I have worked, among other things, on the Holocaust being implemented in one city in Central Eastern Europe. My longest chapter in that book on that city is about the Holocaust, the single longest chapter. And I explain in the book why that is the case, because it's the worst thing that happens there, among a lot of very bad things. And it's also the thing that destroys and impacts the city most, right? So... I'm very clear about the reality of the Holocaust. And yet, or maybe precisely because of that, I'm also very clear about the fact that what we are seeing, and not for the first time, is, as you say, a weaponization of Holocaust memory to shield new crimes. And what exactly is happening here? Look, take a non-German example, right? You mentioned some of these things. Uh, Keir Starmer, the head of labor, um, labor, so-called labor in Britain, um, the so-called left, Keir Starmer came out today or yesterday and, and claimed that what happened on 7th October, which I repeat is tragic and terrible, was an attack on Jews as Jews, completely shutting out the context that what happened was Hamas was attacking soldiers of an oppressive occupying regime. That is not Jews as Jews. That is actually a different thing, right? But why is, why is Starmer doing this? Because he or the people who make him say that, I'm sorry, want him to create the impression that any, any resistance to Israel now is the same as what the Germans did 
to mostly entirely helpless Jewish victims in World War II. A completely perverse comparison on the simple grounds that Israel is not helpless. Israel is not a helpless state. It no. is probably the most, it is actually the single most powerful state in the Middle East. Now, this is highly dependent on American support, but as long as this support is there, that's a fact. It is the only state in the Middle East that has been allowed to acquire an illicit nuclear arsenal and to keep it out of any regime of international control. It is, in fact, the only state in the Middle East that up until now has been allowed to have any nuclear weapons. And on top of it, it has a massive conventional army. And as we now see, if push comes to shove, the United States basically sends its army in addition. So if you want to claim that this somehow resembles the Holocaust, then tell me where was the army of the Jewish victims in World War II? There wasn't any. This is a very different situation. And if somebody puts a yellow star on themselves, I find that obscene, obscene. And the reason is that the yellow star was used by the Germans to mark for marginalization, exploitation, um, uh, oppression, um, and finally for murder, for mass murder, victims who were isolated, who were isolated. Now, if you want to see isolated victims whom nobody is helping, today, that's the Palestinians. It's not the Israelis. I'm sorry, that is nonsense. And it is obscene. And I don't care by whom it is done. Absolutely not. It is obscene to treat the memory of the victims of the Holocaust in this way, because that is actually disgraceful towards those Jews who were actually mass murdered in the Holocaust. It's horrific. And I mean, there are Jewish voices by now too who are saying this, if that's important. You know, for some people it's important from what ethnic point one speaks. Okay, let's <laughs> add that. But now there are Jewish voices who are very clearly saying, we don't want this. This isn't right. The people who use the Holocaust or its memory in this way now are actually, A, disrespecting the real victims of the Holocaust, and they're also destroying this memory. They are inflating and destroying and cheapening and tearing down this memory. They are the ones who give others a reason to say, well, you mentioned the Holocaust. First of all, I want to know why. Have you got an agenda, right? Because unfortunately, some people obviously very clearly do have an agenda, right? So I, I have absolutely no patience with this. You know, these if people want to make any comparisons, and even there, I'm, I'm still on the whole very careful, but I'm sorry, the victims of a genocide here are the Palestinians. The Holocaust was a genocide, a very large genocide. So you want to make a category comparison? you would have to make it with the Palestinian victims. And if you want to make a comparison about perpetrators, those who kill, those who give the orders, those who have the idea that a whole ethnic group should vanish so that our nation has room, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sorry, that would be a lot of Israeli politicians and generals and also simple soldiers now. If people don't like to hear this because it is so perverse, I can't help them. I'm not shaping the world. I'm describing it. Yeah, I mean, I, it's very well said. And it's just also amazing to see the reaction from the West. And, 
You know, you wrote this really good piece called Multipolarity is Not Enough at your Substack, mm-hmm. which I encourage people to check out and I'll include a link to it. Um, and in it, you talk about the reactions of different countries. And I think this is an interesting dichotomy here, which is you have the minority in the global north, the Europeans, the Americans, the Canadians, the Australians, you know, the typical settler colonies of Europe on all on the same side, uh, which is the side of Israel unconditionally, you know, making a mockery of these polite sort of pronunciations of we stand with Israel and we hope they'll respect humanitarian law. And it's like after the fifth or sixth hospital they've bombed. Um, And I know, I know these, I know these Western leaders are seeing uh, the images that a lot of us are seeing. They know better than we do. Of Palestinians. Yeah, of course they do. They know exactly what the Israelis are doing. And I'm sure behind closed doors, they're probably saying, oh, wow, the Israelis are really targeting civilians, but they just don't care for a lot of reasons, you know, that uh, we don't necessarily have to get into or we can. But I guess the point I wanted to make here is what are what's your view on the fact that there's such a massive uh, crack between the vast majority of the world? And the so-called civilized Western countries. I mean, we've seen Mm -hmm. some leaders in particular, the president of Colombia, for example, Gustavo Petro Mm -hmm. has literally called this a genocide. Uh, Erdogan, despite whatever, you know, sort of opportunism he may be engaging in, has made some really, really harsh comments about what Israel's doing. And actually, you know, as of this recording, it was just yesterday that Mm -hmm. the Israelis bombed a hospital that the Turks yeah. actually funded, which is like the only mm. can has the only cancer ward in all of Gaza. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you have, you know, even the leaders across the region that are in charge of countries that are very close to the United States, the Saudis, the Egyptians, the Jordanians have been making pretty harsh statements that we're not used to hearing um, mm-hmm. when, you know, Gaza is being bombed because they're horrified and also very concerned about how this might affect the sort of internal dynamics of their own countries as Arab anger boils over. Um, but the, the point I'm trying to make here is most of the world wants a ceasefire. Most of mm-hmm. the world is mm-hmm. against this, but like Joe Biden, Anthony Blinken, Ursula von der Leyen, and all of these people who, you know, mask has slipped. They just like, do not care how many children mm-hmm. are killed in Gaza get to run the show and say, no, this will continue. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that massive divide. Yeah, you know, look, um, I, I too am, uh, you know, first of all, I don't, I don't want to talk about myself. Like, I'm, I, I have the problems here, you know. But I, just to describe, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked, right? And I, I can't really get out of the shock because maybe like many people, and maybe we were all naive, right? And I mean this. Um, the incredible openness with which the West is doing this now has still surprised me, right? They've come out with a brutality that is just like this in-your-faceness. So Mm -hmm. what is going on here? I don't know. But I would turn the question personally slightly around. I would say, look, there there is a normal, humane response to these Israeli attacks, as they are. And that is the response of most of the world, right? So in in a way, you have to ask, why is the West so strange, right? The rest of the world is reacting more or less normally. Human beings (coughs) always disagree. Their interests come in, their their biases come in. I understand all this. Opportunism can play a role, right? 
But on the whole, the non-West is reacting in a humane way, in a way you can recognize as this is psychologically and intellectually maybe not perfect, but more or less normal, right? The West is not, not at all. So the question is, what is this pathology in the West? And I don't know the answer. I, I see that Western publics are also partly not doing what their governments want, which I find encouraging in a, in a very modest way. So it's not that people like von der Leyen or, or, or Starmer, we just mentioned him, or Joe Biden or, or Blinken or uh, Trudeau, you know, that they actually necessarily represent everybody in their country. I think it's rather the opposite. There are sizable parts of these populations that don't want to go along, that go on marches and so on, right? Is it enough? Probably not. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not being, again, naive here. But so then if you narrow the question down to what is it with these elites, and it's not just politics, it's also in the media, right? At least in the traditional media and the mainstream media, if we want to use this term. I don't know. Is it long-term socialization and certain ideological tenets that have been so thoroughly ingrained that they override basic humane and human response? Maybe. Is it that they perceive interests? Are the people right who um, speculate, or maybe it's better than speculation, that all of this also has to do with EU energy policy, you know, and the ideas of a new energetic corridor coming from the Indian Ocean. It's it's so bizarre that one really, I struggle. I, I, it's very hard for me to build a hypothesis of what <laughs> is going on with these people. Is it funding? Is it funding? And again, I will not be accused of some sort of anti-Semitism for simply stating the fact that lobbyism, and funding is a very real thing in the United States and also in Europe. Does that play a role? Does it play a role with Starmer? Does it play a role with the Democrats? Does it play a role with Biden? Asking that question has nothing to do with anti-Semitism. It is a perfectly irrational question about the sources of inexplicably obtuse and brutal policies. And not only are they obtuse and brutal. Here comes another thing. So, you look at this, and I, I do think the first question is a moral question, which we've just talked about. But the second one, okay, you want to go all hard code geopolitics, right? Our inner Machiavelli to be unleashed. So is what the USA doing rational in this way? By no means. We could talk more about this, but it's digging itself into a hole deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's risking a three-front World War Three by now, that's not rational. Whatever these people think they're doing, it's not rational. Is what the Europeans, that is the EU, doing rational? No, that's not rational. Antagonizing the whole global south and letting the mask slip like this? No. With the world going the way it is now, with, as I really am convinced, multipolarity being a fact, it's there and it will go bigger. You cannot stop multipolarity. It's just a thing. With the world going this way, there's nothing even cynically rational in this Western response. So even on that, on that level, I, 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 I am at a loss to finally explain this, to be honest. It's absurd. It's insane. It really is. And I think it's a, a it's really interesting in this piece that you did write about multipolarity is not enough. You mm -hmm. mentioned how the U.S. is leading the West, of course, and enabling this extreme right Zionist settler regime by pro providing diplomatic cover and arms. 
And also the fact that this is happening while Washington is also still backing this horrible proxy war in Ukraine, also trying very hard to go to war with China. It is a kind mm. of insanity that speaks to what you call this kind of this this American empire in decline. And you make this so, distinction yeah. that I'd love for you to elaborate on about the difference between the American empire in decline versus something like the Soviet Union in decline and why Washington's decline is actually so much more dangerous. Is, I mean, the Soviet decline wasn't dangerous for the world. It was dangerous for the Soviet Union, obviously, because of what happened in the aftermath of that, uh, but which was a lot of it was mm -hmm. Washington's fault. But the point is, is that you have these elites in Washington who are just prepared to like increase their wars and fight and fight and fight, even if it brings us to World War III. Can you talk a bit about that kind of frightening threat that American decline poses? Not because it's a mad if it's bad if, if if America isn't the world hegemon, but just because of what that means in America's reaction around the world. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I in that piece I wrote that you that you referred to, I sort of um, evaded the question of the reasons, right? I wanted to, to write a short piece and just describe what I see. Um, and I, I didn't really expand on why the US and the former Soviet Union are, I think, very different in the way they respond to decline, right? And this is, we are talking about the elites really here. And, and you know, if, if I do try to, to think about that, speculate about this, a few things come to mind. One thing is that when you look at who really called the shots in the Soviet Union when the Soviets made these fundamental decisions to give up in the Cold War, uh, to do so on the basis of agreement, especially with the Americans, they were the main partner here, where the Soviets didn't initially really lose the Cold War, but they certainly got the shorter end of the stick, right? And the Soviets agreed to that. The, the agreements that come about in the late 1980s in the Soviet leadership and the American leadership are disadvantages to the Soviets. And the Soviets are rational enough to say, yeah, we are the weaker party. It's not going well. Obviously, the outcome is going to be asymmetrical. And they live with that. At this point, they don't expect that everything will be lost, as it then will be by 91. But they are ready to live with this unequal outcome to the Cold War. That's the first step they take. Then when their empire actually falls apart, first in Eastern Europe and then inside their state itself, they refrain from initiating a bloodbath, which is what states can do. This was an extremely well-armed state. It could have fought inside and outside, and it hardly did either, right? So that, why did they do this? Because the man who calls the shot, Gorbachev, is, we know this about him now, a true believer in what he thinks is socialism, right? So his socialism may differ from many other people's socialism, but it's a fact that Gorbachev believes in some form of socialism. And his version of socialism has one feature, which is it is very humane, right? This is very far from Stalin's idea of socialism. Stalin's idea, if you want to have like a polar opposite of socialism, is inhumane and brutal. Gorbachev's idea of socialism is very humane. And it goes back to this quality that socialism as a whole has, that it can take on very different shapes. Gorbachev stands for the best of it in many ways. He's naive politically. He shouldn't have treated with the Americans the way he did. I think his critics are right about this. He trusted them far too much. 
But that, those are different errors. It's certainly not an error of his that he's a very humane and very peace-loving person. And this is extremely important at this time. So now let's look at the American side. It's almost an irony or paradox. In a way, the American elite now in control, these neocons, and they're all neocons by now, whether Democrats or Republicans, it really doesn't matter anymore. They are also true believers. But they, what they truly believe in is actually, like Gorbachev, a version of the old ideology of their country. But in their case, it's a particular nasty version, right? It's sort of inverted. Imagine Roosevelt with all his, his flaws, and they were great, as somebody who sort of tries to make the best of Americanism, right? The American way, if you want, the American ideology. That's very important to explain him and his impact. Now imagine the people who are now in charge, they stand for the worst in American history. I really think that they stand for corruption, for putting profit above all else, for a geopolitics that knows absolutely no limits, right? You, you only can win and you win at any price. They stand for making no compromise, as little as the Americans did originally with the original inhabitants of the continent, right? They stand for exploitation. They stand for a particular nasty form of capitalism. All of these things are the dark side of America, in a sense, as Stalin was the dark side of Soviet socialism, right? So when the Soviets go down, you have a leader who stands for the best side of what, it, of what was there in the Soviets. There were, you know, there were genuine humane ideas somewhere in that mix. They were often not obeyed. They were honored in the breach a lot, but they were there. And what you have now is you have a ruling elite in America that I think stands for the worst in what America can stand for. And and I'm not an anti-American, although I'm extremely frustrated with this country at this point. What I'm saying is there probably is a different type of being an American, but right now it's completely gone. All we see is the darkest side of what being American can mean. And the other thing, of course, is, this is very important, the Soviets make a big mistake, which, however, in the end benefits the world. They look in this moment towards the West and in general, they think the West is better than us, mm. right? They admit that to themselves. They give up on the competition and they say, oh, the West, they've done it right. We, we did it wrong for 70 years. Let's try to join them. Let's learn from them. Let's take advice from them. Let's literally get their advisors, right? And then they're mistreated in return. America is completely different right now. It looks at the rest of the world and absurdly says, we still know everything better. Nobody's mm -hmm. ever better than us. We never have anything to learn from anybody else. This is a very different attitude. America has nowhere from this mindset to go to and say, oh, okay, if we get weaker and become one among many or several big powers, that's not so bad because these other guys actually have something to offer. We can learn from them, right? It's the opposite. They only feel threatened, and their only answer to this angst, this all-pervading fear, is we must retain absolute control. <laughs> it's insane. It is. It's completely insane. It's like it's like a if a narcissist was a country, maybe I don't yes. know. <laughs> Just, yeah. um, it's, it's a narcissist it, national disorder. Yes. Yeah, it really, really collective narcissism. Um, 
And then you you write that the only way to prevent this is to is to contain and deter Washington, those states yes. who understand that the survival of humanity is more important yes. than the manifest destiny and indispensability delusions of the USA will have to do more than just bypassing Washington. They'll have yes. to form a global coalition to threaten it into accepting yeah. its decline no less peacefully than the Soviets had to accept theirs. So I guess this is what you mean by beyond multipolarity, because multipolarity itself doesn't necessarily create that, right? It gives space oh. for it, yes. but it doesn't create it. And right now, when you kind of when you look around, it does feel like, yes, the majority of the world is like, what is going on? What the hell are you doing? But there's no mechanism for it to act. I mean, the UN has proven to be largely like US controlled in so many ways that it's useless. Despite the mm -hmm. fact that, like, the UN General Assembly voted overwhelmingly for a ceasefire, they can't mm -hmm. make it happen, right? Mm -hmm. And China is, you know, how China is. China doesn't like to intervene. It's trying to use, like, diplomacy in, in whatever ways it can, but it's kind of sitting on its hands a bit. Um, and then Russia is doing what it can in its own little sphere, you know. I, I mean, they're, they're vetoing things at the UN Security Council, but again, it's like the UN is such a useless institution. It doesn't really matter. So mm -hmm. it feels almost like, it feels almost like at this point, it's proof that multipolarity isn't enough. Like you do need mm -hmm. something more, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure if that's what you meant ultimately in, in that piece. Or what, yes. what do we need then? That go, what, what do we need beyond multipolarity? I, you know, I, I, and I'm not saying this to bolster anything. This is an accident. It's a coincidence. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear the rest, you can access it by becoming a Breakthrough News member at patreon.com slash breakthrough news.